Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of We're Gonna Need a Bigger Show. This is a very special episode today. Uh, not only do we have a special guest, but we are also co-presenting today's interview with Chattanooga's own Vitamin Geek podcast and... Corey Keelan. Corey, thank you so much for, for doing this today. Thank you for inviting me. It's awesome. Absolutely, man. Uh, and as I said, today we have a very special guest, Mr. Joe Bob Briggs. Sir, thank you so much for sitting down with us today. Well, I'm happy to be here. Uh, so we're here at the Chattanooga Film Festival again, and uh, last night you gave a, a lecture. Can you talk a little bit about you know how that went? Yeah, let's not call it a lecture. That sounds okay. too <laughs> academic. Okay. I, I showed a lot of film clips and showed, showed a lot of uh, uh, visuals on... That we did the whole history of the South in film, the, the history of it was more the history of how Hollywood portrays the South in film. Sure. For starting in 1904, with a movie that was shot in Scarsdale, New York, called The Moonshiner. It was supposed to be Kentucky, but it shot in Scarsdale, New York, and um, continuing up through the horrors of modern times, oh. you know, and uh, you know all the lame. KKK movies that are made today. We talked a lot about the KKK. That was that, <laughs> that was one of the things you were talking about with exploitation films. Do you want to talk about that? Um, yeah, one of the questions I, I thought of, um, exploitation is definitely not as prominent as it was in the 70s, but modern exploitation, to, in my personal opinion, feels meaner than it used to. It used to have kind of a little little more whimsy than it does to me now what what are your thoughts on kind of modern exploitation what are you talking films? about torture porn stuff like that <laughs> well you know uh, i guess so I, i'm more like the indie kind of um i was trying to think of some examples um i picked up a bunch of films at a horror con about a month ago and they were just things i wouldn't imagine ever putting on film uh but it just seemed like a lot more yeah. visceral than the older well, you have to remember that the word the word exploitation was a was an industry word. It was used by the filmmakers themselves. It meant uh, it, it, it's what was later called high concept, which means it's an it's it's a marketing term. It means exploitable. It means the idea of the film, the simple idea of the film, and the poster are exploitable, and you can sell it. You know so. Exploitation was a good word to them because it, exploitation was their word for marketing. Sure. Okay. And and so uh, now the reason that it became associated with the B movie is that in the fifties and sixties you had a, a two tiered distribution system. You had you know the major studios controlled the major theaters, and then you had uh, the drive-ins and the grindhouses, and those uh, needed product. And in order to lure people away from the bigger budget movies, uh, they had to be exploitable. So those were called exploitation movies. And what happens is, you know, those were made, especially the grindhouses, those were made for what they called the raincoat crowd, you know? Mm -hmm. And um, um, especially the, you know, the sex-based films, which were very mild for the time. They weren't what we would call real porn, but, you know, they're made for the raincoat crowd. And then the drive-ins were, were sort of the the home of uh, horror and low-budget sci-fi and the teen movie, which was kind of invented at the drive-in. And, and so uh, you've got all these genres developing. And then after, after the uh, two-tiered system goes away, a whole different audience comes and starts watching exploitation films. 
the audience that appreciates exploitation films today is not the same audience as the, the films were designed to satisfy. Sure. So, uh, so there's two different ways to look at these films. And, the, and the, the hipsters and the geeks of the last 30 years look at it in an ironic way. They look at the exploitation films in an ironic way. It's, a, it's the same way you look at pro wrestling. You know, they appreciate it. They appreciate the show. They appreciate the showmanship. They appreciate the cheesiness. You know, whereas somebody watching that same what somebody watching Blood Feast in 1965, he's watching it as a straight narrative movie. Right. You know, okay. he's pulling into the drive-in and he's hoping that it's going to make him puke. You know. <laughs> so, um, you know, and, and he, he didn't know the difference between low budget, high budget exploitation. You know, there's the, those those differences don't exist. So, to, but to answer your question, today, there's every kind of movie that could possibly exist. Now, when the technology to make movies got so cheap, about 15 years ago, um, I, thought it would, I thought it would lead to hundreds, if not thousands, of great <laughs> exploitation movies that you couldn't find anywhere else, just on the simple principle of, of you know, if you have 10 million monkeys typing, they'll eventually <laughs> type, you know, Hamlet. So, so I thought, you know, but that has not happened. Right. I mean, I can tell you, that has not happened. I mean, those guys need to go back to film school. Right. Because, well, one of the things you say on your website, I mean, you'll say that you'll watch, you know, you'll review stuff and, you know, you'll, you'll look at scripts and stuff. I mean, do you think that the idea that technology is more readily available is detrimental to film? No, no. Technology being cheap is good for film. What's bad for film is filmmakers who don't bother to art direct their scene, to right. script their scene, to cast it with professional actors. I mean, it's the filmmakers' fault. And they say, "Well, we didn't have any money." Well, you didn't do any. You didn't do the the, the things that don't cost any money, like fixing the script. You didn't do those things right either. You know, so so I, the, the we didn't have enough money doesn't matter. You know, the, the, I say, well, "Why did you put your cousin in the film?" <laughs> You know, who's a non-actor? Sure. Well, we didn't have any money. What? Where? You know, where do you live? Lawrence, Kansas. Don't they have a university there? Yes. Don't they have a drama department in that university? Don't they have like at least 150 people who would who have been trained to act and who would love to act in a movie? You know, it's like show a little bit of initiative. You know, yeah. I don't care where you are. There's a community college somewhere near you with some actors in it. Sure. <laughs> Uh, well, I mean, to, to kind of back up then, I guess, uh, just, I mean, what, growing up, I mean, what were, did you, were you film obsessed growing up? I mean, was that a, was that a thing that, that happened for you or did that come later on? Uh, that came later on. I was not film obsessed. I, I was aware of, of films and I loved films and I went to films and when I was a kid, my birthday party was always a film party. You know, we would go see whatever was, you know, whatever was hot at the time and, 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 and as, as sexual as we were allowed to see, <laughs> sure. you know, you know, as we got older and older, we could see more and more, you know, sex in the film. <laughs> but, um, but uh, really, um, uh, what happened is, um, you know, I won't bore you with the early details of my career, but I got to a point where I was, um, I was trying to finish a true crime book. I was writing a true crime book, and I needed a job where I didn't have to travel all the time. And so uh, a friend of mine was an entertainment editor, 
at the uh, Dallas Times Herald, and um, I and she needed a film critic, and I said, uh, "Can I be the film critic?" And um, she said, "Sure. Why do you want to be the film critic?" And uh, at the time, I didn't know that it was so hard to become a film critic, you know. Sure. And so I said, "Well, I you know I love films. I've always loved films." And she says, you, do you know you have to watch everything? And I said, yeah, yeah. I said, that's what appeals to me about it, you know, that I can just, like, go to the screening room, go home, you know, do this job. Sure. So I became the, the regular film critic, not the, you know, uh, and, 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 I was, and, and I was reviewing every movie that came out, and most of them were Hollywood blockbusters, and I just hated them. I just, like, didn't enjoy myself at all. And then occasionally there would be weird European art films that would show up in town, and I love those. And, and you know, the great thing about European films that end up over here is so few of them end up over here that we only get the good ones. Sure. You know, it's like we, we get the one out of 100 you know, <laughs> right. that, that has international appeal. And so... Can you remember any of the early ones that you saw? Well, I remember one in particular that we... Uh, um, a, f a friend of mine that ran the Inwood Theater, which was the indie art house in Dallas, named Bob Burney, um, who would later go on to be a famous uh, distributor. He distributed, he actually ended up distributing the two top indie films of all time, which were The Passion of the Christ and um, My Big Fat Greek Wedding. He oh, distributed wow. Both of them. <laughs> but um, at the time, he was the manager of the, of the local indie theater. And one year we went to the Cannes Film Festival together, and I saw this really intense, depressing, um, four-part, it was, it was four stories in one, Turkish film <laughs> called Yol. It had a bad name, it was depressing, <laughs> and for some reason I loved it. It was just mesmerizing. <laughs> and I said, Bob, did you watch Yol? And he says, yeah. And I said, have you ever shown a Turkish film? And he says, no. I said, have you ever shown a film that's depressing? Probably not. <laughs> I said, if you'll, if you'll find the rights to this film, you know, I'll review it for the paper because I think people will go to this film. He says, why do you think people will go to this film? It's like, it's Turkish. It's tur <laughs> Turkish people. And it's Turkish people in prison. <laughs> And, uh, you know, it's like um, Midnight Express was depressing enough. This is more depressing than Midnight Express. Sure. It's like the real Turkish prison. And so um, we went back to Dallas, and he got the rights to it. And uh, I wrote this review, and um, it, like, set box office records only in Dallas. Oh. <laughs> only in Dallas. It's like, and other distributors around the country were saying, what? What is that? Yol. It's Yol. It's called Yol. Y-O-L. You know, and uh, no one ever knew what it was or why it performed like that. It was like this blip on the, on the, uh, on the screen there. But um, anyway, I, the two kinds of movies I liked were the foreign movies and the exploitation movies. Now, I quickly discovered that there were a lot of movies that were premiering at the drive-in that were never screened for the critics. And so I was like calling up the distributors and, the, and they would say, we don't screen those movies. We don't let critics see those movies. All except one guy, Roger Corman. And Roger said, you wanna see my movie? He said, you know, go to this theater on Wednesday afternoon, my old friend, whatever, he'll run it for you, you know. And so I started out reviewing Roger's movies. Um, uh, 
We, uh, we kind of thought that I was going to get in trouble when I started writing the column. The column was called Joe Bob Goes to the, to the Drive-In. And so we buried it in this Friday section that came out. This Friday section had about 60 pages where all the discount furniture ads were. And it was greasy and the ink came off on your hands. So we put it like back on page 54. Um, so mainly because we knew that editors don't read their own papers. <laughs> right. And so we could uh, get it started without any editor really calling attention to it. I had one editor that was on my side and we were like plotting to do this. And by about the third month, um, it was getting massive amounts of mail. And uh, I knew that it was like, now it was too hot for them to kill it. Right. And, so, and so that's how it started. Uh, and increasingly the other distributors would let me see their movies. And when we're talking about the days of really, really low rent distributors, I mean, a lot of them were in, you know, illegal buildings in Marina del Rey and <laughs> and, and um, they, uh, there was this one guy, Lon Kerr, motion picture marketing. I would call up Lon and I would say, Lon, um, Eager Beavers, have I seen that? And he would say, yeah, you saw that last year with swinging stewardesses. And he said, I'm, I'm putting it out again. <laughs> I said, okay, I didn't want to waste my time. Right. You know? <laughs> So, in order to, to be able to talk about these kind of films, you created Joe Bob, and mm -hmm. so what was the transition to television? How did, how did that come about? Um, in, in 1985, um, or 1986, I can't remember now, whenever they filmed uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2, um, I went down to Austin for the filming to write an article for Rolling Stone magazine because Rolling Stone magazine wanted an article on it was Dennis Hopper's comeback. He'd been he'd been a drunk and he got sober and and probably more than a drunk. I mean he he had substance abuse problems mm -hmm. and now he got sober and he was back. And so I was going down there to do this piece on Dennis Hopper and. Toby Hooper finds out I'm going down there and, and knows that I'm the world's biggest supporter of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And um, um, uh, the um, uh, writer of the movie, um, uh, Kit Carson, who had also written Paris, Texas, uh, said to me, um, you know, why don't we write you a couple scenes while you're down here? So we wrote a couple scenes and, and um, I hung around the set um, for a long time. This article came out and then uh, the people at the movie channel saw the article and they said, you know, we buy all these cheap movie packages from Europe that we don't know what to do with and so what we'll do is we'll have a hosting segment on Friday night. And In we'll true try, horror host fashion. Yeah, we'll, well, we'll try this guy out. They were cheap. They, sure. Uh, the movie, movie channel was very, very cheap and so they wanted simple solutions for programming. So um, the idea was to put me in a chair uh, in front of the screen, <laughs> right. and, and um, I wasn't the only one, by the way. They had um, they had they hired four uh, hosts for different types of movies, and um, it was supposed to be for one month. And then after the month, they invited me back for a second month, then a third month. I don't think we ever signed a contract. I just kept coming back. I just kept coming back. And then they started firing the other hosts. And by the end of the first year, 
or the second year, they fired they fired everybody except me and Robert Osborne. <laughs> and oh, that's by great. the end of the second year, um, Robert Osborne was filming his stuff somewhere else. Sure. And I was in this big empty studio <laughs> in Spanish Harlem, um, where they used to film the honeymooners. Right. And in fact, the the Joe Bob set we were using was a painted over flat from the honeymooners. And um, that's crazy. <laughs> And uh, I, I said, you know, I don't really need to be coming up here to this big empty set, uh, you know, once a month. I'll just shoot this in Dallas and I can probably do it like a lot cheaper. Yeah. And so we moved the show to Dallas and Ross Perot had built this big fancy studio <laughs> that, that he was going to use for his presidential campaign. <laughs> And uh, it was the fanciest TV studio I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> and nobody wanted to use it. Um, for a while, Barney the Dinosaur used it. But <laughs> then they, 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 they moved out. And so nobody used it except me and Ross Perot. Oh. And uh, in fact, if you, if, if, you, if, you're, if you remember Ross Perot's presidential campaign, he stood in front of a chart and had a pointer. And he pointed at like how the budget was getting out of control or whatever. Well, that chart and that pointer were like just off camera from the from the Joe Bob's driving set. You know, yeah, I was here, he was over there, and uh, we didn't ever have to worry about him because he hated he hated to be on TV. So he, right. he would like rush in, and everyone would freak out. You know that he was going to get bored before they could get to all the shots that they needed, and then he would be gone, and then you know we we would we would uh, shoot. So anyway, I, so I ended up being on. Um, the movie channel for I think nine years, yeah, nine years, and that's that's 52 weeks a year. That's sure. a double feature, sometimes a triple feature, sometimes things I was doing on Showtime as well, um, and um, so that's how that whole thing started. It started with Texas Chainsaw Massacre too. Wow, that's awesome. What uh, what was the transition to to Monster Vision? How did how did they approach you for that? And I mean, well, they had a. They were going to have a format change at the movie channel, and they didn't need me anymore. And so uh, we did our final show. And um, what was the final show? Do you remember? I don't remember what movie it was, okay. but I remember at the end of it, uh, I took off the hat and I laid it down in the chair. And the last <laughs> shot, they they pushed, they pushed in, out on the hat. They pushed in on the hat in the empty chair. So that was the final shot of uh, Joe Bob's Drive-In Theater. And then um, I was only off the air. This was just a pure lucky break. There were two programmers at TNT who um, um, liked liked Joe Bob, uh -huh. and so they um, said, "What would you think about uh, coming on our show, which already existed, Monster Vision?" Um, they had had other hosts okay. come on, the guest hosts. You know, so the same thing as, as, as history repeating itself, sure. come be a guest host. <laughs> and so I went as a guest host, and I, I didn't, within a matter of months, we just said, hey, you know what, I've got all, I've got all this, this, these sets <laughs> and, and all, the, all this stuff, you know, in Dallas. You want to shoot in Dallas? And they were like, yeah, let's wow. shoot in Dallas. So we just went right back and started um, doing it again. Now, the, the Monster Vision shows were more complicated because... Sure. Um, uh, there's a very complicated formula for where you put the commercials in a in a in a TV movie. Um, 
I don't know if you've paid attention to it. You probably have, but uh, you know the the first when a when a TV movie starts, it goes for anywhere from 17 to 23 minutes. That's you have that much of the movie before the first commercial, and then as you get closer to the end of the movie, the commercials get closer and closer and closer together. That's why it's so annoying to watch a movie on TV. <laughs> Because it's uh, you know once once you're hooked and you've got to know how it ends, that's when the commercial starts. So that's that's the tried and true way of doing it. Well, sure. now we're going to add another annoying thing, <laughs> which is a guy talking as soon as the as soon as the commercial segment starts. Right. When and uh, the 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 great thing about that show, and I don't think it'll ever be repeated. I don't I don't think any network would do it today. Because the great thing about that show is. We had no time constraints whatsoever. We had we would do two movies a night, and whenever we finished, that's when we finished. They would show, um, they would fill in with whatever they had to fill in with until 6 a.m. when the programming cycle started again. Right. So as long as we were done by 6 a.m., we could we could finish at 3 a.m. We could finish at 5 a.m. They didn't care. So I didn't ever have to worry about how long the segment was. Right. Which uh, is a great freedom for something like that because you know when you're trying to like hit 45 seconds exactly or something, I can do it, but it's not going to be as good as if I can just talk. And right. so, um, so that was the wonderful thing about those guys is that they let me do that. And um, but eventually that was killed too by again a format change where they wanted to be more women friendly. Uh, at uh, TNT, they wanted to have a, a female demographic, and my my show was very very male. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it, it had a high male demographic. Is that when they started the We Know Drama or whatever their tagline? Yeah, I think it, well, I think it was shortly after that. I remember they were buying, they were real proud of themselves for buying up ER reruns. Sure. You know, so. <laughs> uh, one of the things you said, you know, you don't think that they would ever. Uh, you know, do anything like that again. I mean, has there ever been a, a conversation about bringing Monster Vision back or, you know, you doing something online? Yeah, or, yeah. I had one recently, actually, with a, with a guy who wants to do it, who wants to do it for syndication. Okay. And so, uh, I don't know if syndication exists, but, <laughs> you know, but you used to be able to do shows on syndication. Um, and um, I would be up for it. I mean, sure. I, I don't think people know how much how much planning it takes to be that spontaneous. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> and so it's a it's kind of a it's kind of a pain in the butt uh, production uh, uh, schedule on those because I was a lot of times they weren't deciding what the movies were until the last minute and then it, and it was before there was much information easily available online. And so so you didn't decide what the films were. Uh, what, the way that would work is at the beginning of the year, I would go through everything that they owned, mm -hmm. and I would tell them what I wanted to show. Sure. Now, a lot of stuff they would just rule out automatically because it was either too old or it was in black and white. <laughs> so, for example, they owned uh, Todd Browning movies. They, mm -hmm. they owned Freaks, um, and they would never show it because they thought it was, you know, too old and black and white. Um, they didn't really like to show anything. That was more than 15 years old. Sure. They would occasionally. Um, they occasionally we would have, uh, as as the second feature, we could show something a little bit more weird. 
Um, but then they would also acquire things that they didn't own, but they would have the licensing for them for the future. Now, that's the, that's the bad part of it, because what they would do is they would program this stuff that they bought. But when you go to a film market, you know, and you want a certain film, the guy, the guy who's selling the film says, I'll sell you this film if you buy 15 others, you know. And so they end up coming back with this package of films, and they, they only wanted one of them. Now, what are we going to do with these other 15? Well, you're going to give them to Joe Bob, you know. And so um, that's how we, you end up with films like um, Super Beast. I don't know if you remember Super <laughs> yeah. Beast, but it was a Filipino monster movie, but you never really see the monster. Right. It's just people wandering around in the jungle for an hour and a half, you know. Um, horrible, horrible film. You know, you, know you, you, you wonder how it ever gets on TV, you know. Um, and the same thing had happened at the movie channel too, because they would buy these packages of um, of uh, European, like European softcore sex films. <laughs> you know, first of all, the softcore sex film. What is the point? You know? <laughs> but, but there, but in the in the 80s, there was this kind of film, the West German sex film, because the West Germans. Every country had its own softcore uh, porn. Um, the worst was England. I mean, England's England's idea of soft, of porn was you know uh, naked guys running down the street like Benny Hill. You know, you know, so, you know, so you you know oh you know the adventures of a plumber's mate. That was one of the that was one, uh, that was one of the movies that we actually showed. You know. Uh, so uh, and then and then the Italian films were always about dirty old men and Catholic schoolgirls. Right. And then the um, uh, so the ones that that played well were the kinkiest ones, which was the Germans. And uh, there was one that always got a huge rating, and it was called "She's 19 and Ready." Oh. And she wasn't 19; she was about 35, and she wasn't that ready either. But, but uh, uh, you know, the title "She's 19 and Ready" it would always score. So they kept running it over and over and over again. I'm, run, I'm running out of stuff to say about "She's 19 and Ready," other than that she's not 19 anymore. You know, because we've been showing this movie for so many years. Uh, well, we've got we've only got just a few minutes left. Corey, did you have? I know you had a few things that you want to talk about. Um, he actually got two of mine in one earlier. That was, that was impressive. Yeah, that's <laughs> You have a, like a third eye for questions. <laughs> um, this is kind of more for you as a fan. Obviously, you've enjoyed watching some of these movies. So uh, being a fan of horror films, um, there's been a huge, I guess, popularity surge in zombie fiction over the past, I would say, five, six years, maybe, yeah. maybe a little longer. Every city's got a zombie walk. The Walking Dead is watched by millions of people. You know, it's, Right. What, what do you think has caused that? Because it's definitely not a new thing. No, it's, it's, it's fairly... I've seen a lot of horror fads come and go. They always come back. The great thing about the horror genre is it, it, it endlessly renews itself. Sure. Right. So... Um, uh, things that go out of fashion come back in fashion. You know, there's cycles. Um, when I first started writing about horror films, there were maybe five zombie films, five in history. Sure. You know, including White Zombie and um, that French one and 
Uh, Night of the Living Dead was, of course, the most famous one. Uh, but, you know, five. <laughs> and so uh, I think the one that made, uh, that started the zombie craze, the, the person I give credit to is Sam Raimi. I think, I think Evil Dead brought back the zombie. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, other young filmmakers wanted to make that sort of movie. It, uh, that was an incredible achievement by Sam Raimi because he was shooting on uh, 16 millimeter film, editing it on a flatbed, doing the uh, effects in his attic. Uh, he didn't have any money, so he had to steal the equipment, borrow the equipment. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> from Michigan State, um, and so uh, everything about that movie was, you know, a labor of love, and he brought back the the, uh, the zombie. I actually think Evil Dead 2 is the better film. Absolutely. Um, but um, that's because he had some money, for, right. you know, for the second one. But um, so, so that started it rolling, but um, to tell you the truth, it's sort of entered, we're talking about two different things, because we're talking about the films, and we're talking about sort of zombie subculture. Right. Zombie, culture, zombie subculture is more like a haunted house attraction, you know? <laughs> you know, it's like going to a haunted house in Niagara Falls, you know, it's like, <laughs> I, it's like a lot of the zombie walks and everything, that's about the makeup, that's about Halloween, that's sure. about, you know, a, a social event. Uh, it doesn't really have that much to do with the films other than that they're copying the makeup from the films, you right. know. And um, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a good thing and a bad thing. If you, if you, it's always good if, if you have intense interest in a genre. Um, it's bad if the filmmakers don't innovate and take it to the next, uh, 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 and turn it, and, and combine genres, and do new things with it. And of course, as we all know, the most innovative people in that field right now are on TV, they're sure. not right. in film. Absolutely. Uh, I would like to see some of the films come back to, um, come back to it. I've, I've been predicting for five years, eight years, that it's peaked. And it still hadn't peaked, <laughs> you know, so, well, so I don't know, I can't explain it. The thing that you say, you know, you said innovation, and one of the things that Corey and I had talked about, you know, is, I mean, there's just a glut of, of remakes and reboots and, you know, these kind of things. I mean, what's, what, do you think that'll go out of fashion? I mean, it just seems like it's no, never ending. No, no, anything that makes money is never going to go out of fashion. Sure. I mean, um, the making of motion pictures is just one step away from a Turkish bazaar. I mean, it, it's all about, you know, making it cheap and selling it expensive. And so uh, the guys who make decisions, uh, whether they're on the indie level or the micro-budget level or the studio level, actually the studio level usually is, is taking its lead from the indie level because they don't really watch the films. Uh, the, the studio execs don't really watch these films. So what they do is they see who's popular in the indie world they give them insanely good contracts, sure. and and so that's how Sam Raimi becomes a studio guy, right, you know, instead right. of an indie guy. And and, and um, the film that we that was shown uh, opening night here, um, a woman walks alone at night. The director already has a thirty million dollar movie. You know, that's her first movie. Now right. now she's got a thirty million dollar contract because uh, she made a she she made the first. Uh, Iranian vampire film, you know. And, 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 Did you so, see it? 
I did see it. What did you think of it? Think I thought it fell apart in about uh, uh, 60% in. Okay. Uh, I thought it was very, very gripping at the, at the beginning. I thought the cinematography was beautiful. That black and white cinematography is really hard to do. I thought it was very effective. It was exactly what was needed for that story. And then I, and then I thought that she started repeating herself uh, in the in the um, in what the zombies do and how they relate. And the zombies, what the characters do and how they relate. Um, and um, uh, by the time we got to the end, I was not as excited sure. about it as I had been in say the first. I think it's. I was going to say it's a third act problem. I think it's an end of the second act problem, actually, for act. those screenwriters that are listening. <laughs> it's the end of the second act. She made a mistake, I, in, in my opinion. It, it, and so to me, it's a brilliant student film. And I think that's exactly what it was. I think she made it at the Sundance Institute. She is a film student. You know, it's a student film. You know, it's not going to be, it's not going to get wide distribution. It's going to, you know, be, it's going to go to art houses. So I guess to kind of finish up, what and, and speaking of that film, I mean, what are you watching now? What are, what are some of the things in the last few years that, or even just this year, that you're that you've really liked? Well, I've I've actually been busy uh, starting a film studio, so <laughs> I haven't been able to watch anything. Uh, but um, um, well, as I said before, you know, all, all the all the good stuff is on TV. All right. the stuff is on. Um, is 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 on the TV channels, and so, um, uh, and that's exciting. And, and the reason that's exciting is that um, talk about story arcs. You know, those are uh, sixteen-hour, thirty-two-hour, forty-eight-hour miniseries. Sure. Um, you know, we would have to put paper all over this room to chart the plots of some of these shows. Now, that's sort of why they start to fail in the third season or the fourth season. They, they don't necessarily fail commercially, but they start to, people start to say, oh, I feel like I've seen something similar to this in a previous season. Because you simply cannot sustain, you cannot sustain a story arc. I forget the name of that. Fassbender, the, the, the director Fassbender in, um, in uh, Germany in the uh, 80s made a nine-hour movie which uh, at the time you know was analyzed and people said well you know he almost pulled it off but that's about as far as you can go with a single story arc sure. so mm -hmm. you have to um, I think that's that's why I think that's probably the technical reason why they chose to do American Horror Story the way they do it, because then they don't have that problem. Sure, they right. got to get they got to get twelve hours, but you can you can you can get twelve hours. It's hard, but you can do it. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. Uh, this has been another great episode of We're Gonna Need a Bigger Show. Corey, thank you so much for co-presenting today. Thank you again for having me. The Vitamin Geek. Be sure to check them out. Where can they check you out? Um, on iTunes. iTunes, Facebook, <laughs> Facebook.com slash Vitamin Geek Podcast. Right on. Well, for uh, this, <laughs> we're going to need a bigger show. I've been Mike D. Thank you all so much for listening, and we will catch you next time. Goodbye. We're going to need a big show. We're going to need.